Podcast Revolution Network presents The Way with Noah. Good evening and welcome to this edition of The Way with Manoa, um, brought to you by Podcast Revolution and Media Revolt. Um, just take a moment if you can, uh, give us a, 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 a like, um, you know, if you're following Podcast Revolution and all our other podcasts, you know, listener support, we definitely depend on you and need you to help thrive and continue providing great content from across all of our different platforms. We are here for you. Um, we're also getting ready to launch. You got to be on the lookout for your podcast. Your podcast is going to be an opportunity for you, the supporters, the listeners to share your thoughts and ideas on different topics every week. So, um, if you'd like to know more, you know, just, just definitely, um, keep an eye on the main podcast revolution website. Uh, so tonight, you know, usually I do my show on the way with Anoa, um, which streams on the Benjamin Dixon channel, um, on YouTube. I do my show usually Tuesday nights at 8 p.m., but I really wanted to do something because so much happened today to talk about some of the different things going on with the news. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's just a lot going on today, so I just want to kind of pop in. And I'm joined a little later by Wendy Muse, um, activist and and, 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 and brilliant mind that she is um, calling in from Brazil to talk a little about kind of what some of some research that she's been working on as well as the, the, the Ryan Locke situation, um, you know, the U.S. Olympic swimmers who basically, not basically, who lied, who, who cried wolf <laughs> about some about an alleged um, robbery attempt. But anyway, um, just to kick it off, just wanted to start just a little bit. Um, not sure if anyone saw today, but um, the Chicago Police Department recommended the that that several police officers involved in the Laquan McDonald um, murder cover-up be fired. Um, this is, this is a big step. It's, it's maybe not a, the step that people would like to see in terms of charges against all those other officers who somehow tampered with evidence or otherwise, um, hindered the investigation. However, recommendation for firing and we'll see, you know, how the police board actually, you know, what, what ultimately happens but that that's that's huge. I mean, there's so many officers who actually continue to stay on the books, on the job, despite um, such egregious behavior. So that is definitely, you know, we'll see how that works. And and, and even with, with officers being fired, if it's not done in a certain way, they can just get employed in another department someplace else. If you remember, that was the whole thing with Darren Wilson. Darren Wilson had actually had not Darren Wilson. That was a uh, Darren Wilson's former. Well, I messed that up. Yeah, Darren Wilson's former police department had been shut down for various issues really related to racial issues. And then he went on over to Ferguson. But it was the officer involved in Tamir Rice's murder that actually had uh, pers- stuff in his personnel file. And he was hired anyway by the city of Cleveland. So that was an interesting case that I saw earlier. Uh, well, not case, but as that, that article is definitely something to follow what's going on in Chicago. The other thing I saw that was happening in Chicago is that Chicago Public Schools is actually getting ready to hire a thousand new teachers. 
Well, I'm sure many of you would think that sounds great. That's wonderful. Yeah. Chicago Public Schools also just got rid of a bunch of teachers and principals. They just fired a bunch of people. They fired, they just fired about a thousand um, staff, you know, teachers, principals, other staff across the school board. So it's like you just fired a whole bunch of people to now hire a bunch of people. Um, yeah, it, it's what's going on in Chicago um, is is a microcosm of what is wrong with neoliberal democratic politics and this this focus on um, commercialization and, and privatization and, and, and public processes. Um, at the helm, you know, you have Rahm Emanuel, who, who, I, how is he even still mayor, right? I mean, I mean, why is he even mayor? But, but you have a lot of really great activism stuff that's going on in Chicago and around other cities and stuff where people are leading the charge. Like I just mentioned about the, 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 um, the firings of the police officers, most of this stuff, most of the changes, any, any type of challenges we're starting to see in the system is directly because you have people from the community, activists, parents, principals, people who are willing to stand up and say is enough is enough and that we're going to do this the right way finally this time. So definitely keep your eye on what's going on in Chicago. Um, there's also a piece, I'm talking a lot about Chicago right now tonight, right? There's also a piece in Chicago Reader about how there are, there were several cases of people who were um, charged and convicted of murder when they actually did not kill someone. The person who was killed was actually killed by the police officer. And this is a, a, a not so uh, great thing about the law. If in the commission of a crime, anyone is killed, you can be charged, you know, for that, for, for that death. Um, even when it's your, 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 uh, co-conspirator, you know, the person, the person that you've committed the crime with and several of these cases, you know, people who were killed by the police, um, in the commission of a crime or an omission commission of an alleged crime, the co, you know, the, 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 the co, uh, defendant, the co party has been charged with that murder, which raises some issues because, in these cases we have now before us with police using not only excessive force, um, but, 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 but potentially wrongful killings, um, police overreacting unnecessary, you know, at what point does the police escalation of an incident, right. Then remove any alleged culpability, you know, I, I mean, to, to put upon a potential defendant, the fact that they should have foreseen or understood that a police officer could act in them. And you know, it's, it's, it's a very weird area. It's, 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 it's definitely something to add to the list of things that need to be to looked at more closely because again, you have people who are doing the time for the actions of someone else, but for their action that, that other party's actions, their, their person or co-conspirator, whatever you want to call them would still be alive, would still be present here and now. Um, so today's been, you know, a pretty interesting day. Those were just a few cases I read, a few articles, I keep saying cases, a few articles I read coming out of Chicago. Um, it's just, it's, there's a lot going on. I know, I know the country is really, really focused on the presidential election and, you know, crazy ish Trump says or does or his campaign or whomever. I mean, there's always something and Trump is bad. And if you're not, you know, on the bad wagon about defeating Trump, then somehow you're not brave. You're a coward. You know, you're not doing what needs to be done. But we have so many continuous ongoing examples. I talked about this very briefly um, Tuesday night. We have so many ongoing examples of systemic racialized oppression 
issues that need to be addressed in the system. And unless you were willing to take a stand against those issues in space, wherever it occurs, you cannot position yourself as if you're some great champion because you're able to say something about Trump. That's the e- that's that's easy. You know, little kids can can put Trump in his place. But it takes real courage, it takes real bravery to really take a stand um in terms of things that are going on. So so one one thing that has been held out today as this magnificent step forward, the, you know, the Department of Justice announced that they, you know, they were going to stop supporting private prisons. Um, the Department of Justice, and when you, when you, you know, the, the initial announcement, you see, read the headlines, it's like, wow, they're just shutting down, they're ending private prisons. Here are these, here are these bones that neoliberals try to throw you to pacify you and make you think that they're doing something so that maybe you'll calm down and just get in line. Um, the thing about the DOJ, you know, you, you, there are some several, several really great articles out there. I'm um, think, think progress has a piece, um, quite a few good articles, like I was saying, but when you when you really look at what actually it is, the DOJ, you know, the prisoners, people who are imprisoned in facilities controlled by the Department of Justice in the federal system are a small portion of prisoners who are in in in, in the criminal justice system who are in private prisons or private, you know, correctional facilities in the country. The DOJ has a very small portion of that. So while it's great that the federal government is is going to, and it's not that they're ending completely, they're not abolishing them outright. What they're doing is upon a review of the contracts, you know, they're making decisions that way. So effectively, and I know I saw some 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 memes and stuff about, um, you know, uh, stock prices of, of private prisons dropping today. Um that could be, but that doesn't necessarily translate into a meaningful change within the system as we know it. Most private prisons service states, right? So we have an issue on the state level, which is going to require, you know, continued concerted um, organizing and, and, and interaction. I'm, I'm, hopefully, I'll be able in the next couple of weeks to bring on my stepfather, Messiah AOC, maybe one of his other um, colleagues, to talk more about the work he does with the group Critical Resistance um, that looks at uh, dismantling the prison industrial complex. Um, but yeah, so the DOJ, so, so what they're not, so the federal government's like, yeah, we're doing this great thing. A larger... Uh, 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 a larger segment of private co- correctional contracts oversight, et cetera, is actually with the Department of Homeland Security in terms of immigration de- detention centers. The immigration detention centers for the, I think, I don't know if it's almost like, I don't, I don't know exactly what the portion is. I don't know if it's exclusively or in large part, but they're controlled by private companies um, that have tons of egregious issues and, 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 and are really a, a frustration in the attempts to achieve meaningful immigration reform. Um, so that that's something just within the, the federal system. Like, it's like, look, great, we're doing this great big thing. This is awesome. And a lot of people are seeing a lot of people are like really excited about it and like, wow, is this really happening? It's it, it's 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 nothing to, to it's nothing to, to shake or to brush off. Of course, it's definitely a meaningful, you know, um, process that will begin to happen but when you really start digging in and picking apart you find you know that at the state level is where most of people most people are in private prisons and there have been several articles over the summer and over the spring about how you know people losing money have to look for ways 
to fill their prisons, have to look for ways because you have whole towns like Marion, Illinois, you have whole towns that are built around these prisons. They employ people in the towns. It's, it's an industry. It's an industry and industries have to find a way to stay alive. So you have people lobbying. Um, there, there's just so much that has to be addressed. So yeah, today, you know, Patrick, I wouldn't pat yourself on the back though. Um, because it's misleading because the, 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 Department of, Department of Justice, Department of Homeland Security, the federal government, you know, with the president, president who is the head of the executive branch and all these branches, all these agencies work for him. Um, you know, Department of Homeland Security could do more in terms of private um, detention centers, right? The, the, the conditions that, that, that children and families are kept in is atrocious. So that was that that's just something to think about in terms of today with the DOJ. And I really just think it goes into this conversation that people are beginning to have about brave spaces. We talk a lot about Trump is bad. Trump is evil. And it's possible that those conditions and stuff could become worse with someone like him in charge. But at the same time, it's not like they're all that great right now to begin with. And we've been living the last eight years under a Democratic regime, right, under a Democratic presidency. And we cannot ignore things that exists just because we have Democrats in office. This is not to say that people are bad. It's not to say that they're evil. It's not to say not to support them. Support them if you want to. But just because somebody has your support doesn't mean they des- they're deserving of your undying, unadulterated, unfettered, you know, unchecked, lo- absolute loyalty. You know, correcting people, uh, holding folks accountable and demanding better. You know, demanding that people are treated like people. Demanding human rights are honored and recognized, you know, is, is, is something to be proud of. It's something to aspire to. So we can, people can continue poking your chest out and acting like you're, you're fighting some noble quest because you're defeating Trump. There are a lot of issues that exist out there. You know, I saw something from, uh, 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 I can't even think of her name from the nation. Joan, uh, I'm drawing a blank. I see her face though. Like, you know, people are like, well, you know, Trump has dug all this stuff up and, you know, Trump is this Trump is a scapegoat. Trump is a boogeyman for what is insidious, what is deep, inherent and wrong in America. And not that he himself is not responsible for what he does, what he says. But at the same time, he is a symptom of what is wrong. He is not the problem itself. The problem is much deeper than Trump's rise and defeating Trump is not somehow going to cure it. What it will do is distract you from the work that needs to be done. I know you say that phrase a lot. I do. And and hopefully I'll actually have the clear clarity of mind to finally write this weekend about some of that work, just general overviews to get everyone started with some links and stuff. But for the time being, know that, that you need to roll your sleeves up. We can go down and list, you know, the top 10 issues, the things to focus on. But there's work that needs to be done, even if Secretary Clinton is the, you know, she's the nominee, but even if she becomes the president, there's a lot that needs to be done and definitely need to hold folks accountable. Um, I don't know, I, I'm sure I have some folks listening who are like, if she's president, you know, Jill Stein, you know, even if Jill Stein, even though they, the Green Party has the platform that makes sense the, to a lot of people at the same time, they're in areas that need to be flushed out, that need to be developed and they require people to be engaged, people to demand accountability, engagement and adequate representation. That has to be something that is required of everyone across the board. So that's just my thoughts a little bit on, like I said, a couple of different things going on. Um, Next up in the second part of this podcast is uh, my conversation with Miss Wendy Muse. I mean, it just, you know, sit back, enjoy, 
very, very talented and, and, and interesting um, conversation with a, with a, like I said, a talented woman. Um, she knows her stuff. So we're talking Brazil up next. Thanks. So, so, um, so just, 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 just want to talk, I just want to talk to you just a little bit about your research and research you've been doing. And you did this really, um, you and some other people did a, did a basically a black woman in Brazil syllabus, um, a few days ago. It was several parts that you were doing. Can you tell us just a little bit more about kind of that project and what that brought that about and just a little bit of Sure. Um, so there is a hashtag that was started by a group of us, um, and I feel like there's an echo, so apologies, I don't know if it's near you. Um, but anyway, there's a professor by the name of Kristen A. Smith, um, who's a professor at the University of Austin, uh, University of Texas, Austin, excuse me, and she's written a book about um, police brutality and violence and racism and resistance in Brazil. Um, as well as Erica Lorraine Williams, who's a professor at Spelman. She decided, to, she's actually been the one who's been tweeting for quite a bit now under the hashtag Black Brazil Syllabus. Um, and so they had come together and kind of asked me, they said, you know, you, you've been tweeting a lot about Brazil. And we had basically kind of converged when we were tweeting quite a bit about the Olympics and the response to the Olympics and how there had been quite a bit of misrepresentation of black organizing in Brazil, which is what most of we all work on in some way or another. Um, and so we've seen a lot of tweets and just con con conversations in general dialogue uh, in which the argument was presented basically that Brazilian black organizing and the black movement in Brazil was inspired by or based upon Black Lives Matter in the United States, which it's not to say that Brazilians are not inspired by or directly in collaboration with or discussing uh, Black Lives Matter-based activism, but the issue is that there are decades, if not centuries, of Black-based organizing here in Brazil. So it's a bit of a pattern that we, as researchers who do work on, um, you know, any, any type of research that has to do with Brazilians of African descent, we see this a lot in the United States in popular discourse, um, celebrities who go to Brazil for the first time, or um, people who don't know a lot about Brazil, but who are kind of spokespeople or voices about mm. what's going on in Brazil, oftentimes, unfortunately, um, lack the historical knowledge. And so they, they can make statements that maybe gloss over some of the long-term organizing that's been going on. And I don't think it's intentional. I'm not saying that you know these people are saying, oh, I'm going to go and represent Brazil and misrepresent Brazil. Um, it's an issue just of lack of information sometimes and a lack of basis um, to form, to have a knowledge of that history, right? Um, and so we came together and we said, look, you know, let's let's try to make um, make it for the next couple of weeks or days, you know, as the Olympics pass, let's try to put in focus um, Black Brazilian issues and resistance, racism, how people are dealing with it here, and the history as well of what's going on with Brazilians right. of African descent throughout the country. Um, and so Kristen A. Smith, Erica Lorraine Williams, as well as Ugo Edo, Edu, excuse me, who's an anthropology um, postdoc at the San Francisco State University Health Equity Institute, um, as well as um, Scott Alvin Barton, who's a PhD, he's finishing his PhD at NYU, um, where I'm also a PhD student in history. Um, so we all came together and we said, look, let's put out more information and let's tweet under the hashtag Black Brazil Syllabus. Um, mm -hmm. And so each of us decided to kind of loosely take up different topics throughout the, you know, throughout the Olympics. Right. Um, and Kristen A. Smith in particular, who tweets as prof, uh, like Professor P-R-O-F Sassy, 
Um, she does, she's been tweeting for a minute now uh, under the hashtag uh, Brazil Freedom School. And so she's been speaking specifically about, like I said, you know, racism and resistance to racism and brutality in Brazil. Right, right. Go ahead. And sorry, just to keep going really quickly. Um, so what I had been tweeting about was I had been focusing mainly on the history of or the rep- historical representations of black women in Brazil. But it's not just about black women in Brazil. It just so happens to be that that's what I've done some research on in several presentations and projects on. Mm-hmm. That's not what the, the main focus of the project is, to be clear. Right. I just want to back up for a second. The, the point you made about uh, the... the when 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 things in Brazil when when certain organizing activities started to t- get national or international headline news national news here in the U.S. Um, how you were saying that it's influenced you know correcting basically the notion that somehow Black Lives Matter here you know influenced or spurred that work where that work has already been going. I mean I think that's an excellent point. Not that people aren't motivated. Um, or not even motivated, but not that people aren't inspired by the work of others elsewhere. But at the same time, I think it's very important to stress and correct the mis- misconception that somehow what is happening here spurred action in Brazil. I think that is a really great point. I've not been in Brazil nearly as much as you have. I only spent three weeks there in law school, but it was the best three weeks I've ever had. But it was so engaging and informative. But there is a very deep and rich history and culture and perspective and oftentimes, you know, as Americans, oftentimes, regardless of where we are in the strata, we tend to think that, you know, Americans, we hang the moon and and, and we overlook the actual, I mean, there are lessons that can be learned from other things, too. I remember when we came back, we had to write a paper. My paper was a hood is a hood because when we, whether we were in a favela in Rio or we were in Victoria, there were areas that reminded me of the South Bronx. And in parts of Harlem growing up in the 80s, like, it just, you know, people were like, oh, my God. The white people were like, oh, my God, I never knew. I'm like, I turned to this, my friend Shaquana. Shaquana and I looked at each other like, child, please. This looks like New York. <laughs> I mean, there, of course, it's not exactly the same, but there were similarities, you know. But I think that's a good point that, you know, just to, just, just, just to, just to flush that out. So, like, I think that's a really great point that there's action that goes on across the diaspora, we acknowledge that certain oppressions and, 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 you know, issues with colonial regimes have occurred across the diaspora. Why not movements for struggle, right? Um, but, but so, so you, so this group, you guys came together to do, so tell me just a little bit more specifically about like what, what you, um, your contribution, your research, that, that aspect of it all. Sure. So my personal like dissertation research has to do with um, organizing activism and organizing here in Brazil that was in co- direct contact with uh, people from Portuguese-speaking African countries mm-hmm. a little bit before and right after the colonial period. Uh, I guess I should say like during the Cold War specifically, right? Right. Um, because during the Cold War, at the same time, Africa and many African regions were decolonizing. Um, Brazil was under military dictatorship. So mm-hmm. a lot of this is another example, right, of cross-cultural, multinational organizing to defeat um, a greater power that's oppressing people. Um, so it's interesting, especially during the election season, where I've seen so many people putting out this message that like there's no black left or um, <laughs> there's no sort of socialist organizing or anything in right. among groups of color. And it's like this is exactly what my research is on. So it's been really 
frustrating to say the least. Um, however, in the process of doing that research, I also have kind of like a side hustle, I jokingly call it, um, where I work on, I specifically work on uh, black women's issues here in Brazil. So I've done research on women in the black press in Brazil. There was a very, uh, you know, there's a small but rather active uh, black press here in Brazil during and after slavery, and that continues to the present. Um, and so I had done some research focusing on women in the black press who are writers mm -hmm. and models and all sorts of things, um, sort of at the, at the turn of the century, turn of the 20th century. Um, and then I had also done some research recently on Mulata Samadich, I'm, I'm saying Mulata with air quotes, right? Um, right. Mulata is a term that technically means a woman who's of mixed African, white, indigenous descent. Um, but it's a term that's used often to embody more than just a racial category, and it's kind of one that's not very, it's not favorable anymore. Many people reject the term. It's not quite politically correct um, for a variety of reasons, including mm -hmm. the literal meaning of the word, which is mule, or a, a cross-species breed of sorts. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So, that's what I've been doing research on as well and have been tweeting quite a bit about. Okay. Okay. Very cool. So, how does... So just to just to kind of just think about just some of the stuff that's going on. I know we've talked so much about um, just our the, our personal framing and the way even looking at our election cycle, right? With you know women break, breaking the glass ceiling, the the, the 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 Democratic nominee, all that stuff. Like, how does all of this like in your world, right? Where because you're doing all this work, you know, abroad, and you're looking at these. You know, not just historical struggles, but just also looking at current representations, which a lot of stuff that that people are dealing with now is a struggle in of itself. Like, how does you know, for your framing and purposes, how does that kind of play out for you? Like, yes, we have this great achievement here, and I have my air quotes right now, right? With great achievement, <laughs> with with Hillary Clinton getting this ultimate spot. But when you when you look at the you know, when you look at you know your research and representation and struggles and issues. Particularly talking about, you know, your work in Brazil, like, how does that, like, how do you, what does that mean? Does that mean anything? Does, that, does I mean, also, I mean, I guess it's weird because in Brazil, Brazil's woman president has just been deposed, basically, right? She's right. been overthrown. So this is just looking at all the different dynamics of women and power and the work that you're doing, like, how does that kind of inform maybe the way you go about some of your research maybe around you know right now or does it does it influence any of your thinking I mean does it I don't know I'm trying to find my words here um the technological issues got me thrown off <laughs> no problem, but, no but 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 it's just I'm like it's just like it's so many layers right there it just seems like you know people are working and grinding and going through so much on a day-to-day -day life, but we do have, we have the rise of one, you know, female leader and the, an attack on the other. Um, what do you think about basically their two, I guess, trajectories or, uh -huh. oh. <laughs> I, mean, I, I usually don't struggle like this. This is awful. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no problem. Um, I think I understand what you're getting at and I, I see them in a lot of ways as almost like parallel stories to some degree, but not quite at all, right? right. So that's a completely contradictory uh, answer. But it's interesting when you look at the, I mean, they're very different, even even origin stories, right? I mean, Joma was an activist and a militant during the dictatorship. Mm, she was mm -hmm. uh, literally jailed and tortured and everything by the military dictatorship uh, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, and 
that was part of her and Lula as well. Uh, to be clear, he was a, a union organizer and was also, you know, imprisoned and, and often uh, persecuted by the military regime, precisely mm-hmm. because he and people like Joma were uh, fighting for class-based, uh, folk, you know, politics that were conceived as communist or socialist in a way that was a threat to the state, right? Um, and so I think that there is a I mean, when I compare the way that Hi- what Hillary was doing when she was in her 20s, it's a very different trajectory. Right, right. right. Yes, they're both white women, and yes, they both come from points of uh, places of privilege to some degree, right? They're not filthy rich, but they're not poor and struggling either. Um, but at the same time, I think when you look at sort of the geopolitical differences of their stances, uh, Joma wasn't perfect. Uh, she had her own neoliberal tendencies, for sure, and the, the party itself that she represented, the Workers' Party. Um, but I think in the long run, if you look at some of the programs that she had put into place to help poor people, to help people of color, um, all the changes toward expanding affirmative action during her uh, tenure and during Lula's tenure, for example. Um, Lula, just to be clear, uh, Luis Inácio, that's what most people who don't know, is the president who came before uh, Joma, served two terms, and he's of the same party, so to be mm-hmm. clear. Someone else, you know, said something about, you know, glass ceilings are great, but it doesn't help anyone get out the basement. 
And I'm just like, wow, that that's 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 true. So I think I think yeah, I think that point's really great. Um, just so 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 Brazil. So just continuing where we were because it's kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm taking advantage of the fact that you're actually there. <laughs> but so American ignorance, American I don't know white boy arrogance. I'm not really sure. So um, swimmer dude Ryan. I'm tired of everybody calling him a boy because he's in his 30s. Um, that's yeah. a grown that's a grown man. He's a grown ass man. He's not a kid. He's not some 18 year old wet behind the ear. That's a grown man. Um, so it it appears he lied. It appears they lied about what happened and caused a, a semi-international uproar. Um, how how has the media covered it there, if it's been covered really? Or is it just they're making a big deal? Do you think they just make a big deal of it um, here? No, it's definitely being covered here as well. Um, and it's funny because I don't have a TV in my apartment where I'm staying, uh-huh. so I'm getting all of my news like through the, the print media, right? Through okay. Media, through okay. Twitter, uh, Facebook, etc. So all I've been reading is these articles responding to what happened, and uh, it's been because some people are. I've seen some people portraying it as simply, you know, U.S. American arrogance. Um, some people are talking about the not so much in the Brazilian sense, but some not in sorry in the Brazilian press sense. But some Brazilians, like people mm-hmm. on the ground, are, mm-hmm. are talking about the racial aspects of it or the potentially, you know, class status, racial status, um, national status differences between Ryan Lockie and the people that he's accused of robbing him. Right. Um, but there's also, I think there's also the other side of it, which is sort of uh, what we saw in the U.S. with the kid who was blamed by the judge for having a case of, uh, or not, sorry, his, uh, his defense attorney said that he had a case of affluenza. And that should yes. be somehow an excuse for what he did. And so I've seen a lot of this response in Brazil as well in the press and by some of the elect, some of the officials who are over the case or who are in, in Rio at the moment who have been saying things like, well, you know, boys will be boys. And he's a kid, as you said. You know, he's a kid. Let him have fun. I've seen a lot of that. He's in Rio just for a short time. You know, just let the man be or let the kid be to be specific. Um, and I just, I don't personally buy that. Not only because he's an adult, and she said he and I are the same age. He said he's 32, right? Yeah, he's 32. I, I'm 32, and I don't consider myself an adolescent or a child anymore. I've been Not for a long time. It's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> it's, been, it's been quite a minute. Um, but then the other thing, too, is that I, I think there's even a bit that gets lost in the shuffle when we think, again, it's one of those instances of, like, the U.S. perspective versus the local perspective of people who could have actually been at risk. For what he from what he did. Right. Um, so when it's funny because when I tweeted about it earlier today, um, I just said something like, you know, the first tweet it was a series of tweets, it was a thread, but of course people are lazy and only see one bit of thread. Right. Exactly. Right? Uh, and so I said, you know, file this with all the countless times in history that someone who has racial privilege or economic privilege, or whatever, has accused someone who's um, who's black or brown of committing a crime. So we have plenty of examples of this, not just in Brazil, not just in the U.S., but like worldwide, right? It's always mm-hmm. going to be a group that has some sort of privilege, either racial, economic, gender, both, um, throwing the blame on someone else to try to absolve themselves of culpability. And so, but I think the reason that this particular case of Ryan Lachty goes a lot deeper than that, than just simply privilege versus people without privilege, is the fact that he literally could have uh, endangered people's lives. In right, and right. So right now with the Olympics, I mean, this, this has been going on for for centuries. It's not new. Favelas have existed for a very long time. Mm-hmm. They're actually for people. 
out because of construction projects, much mm-hmm. like we see now happening during the Olympics or during the World Cup. Um, and so, and, and because the elite didn't want to live among them, right? Um, right. And so they were pushed out, and then they, what were they going to do? They had to create their own homes. They had to construct things, uh, construct homes with the materials they had at their disposal. Um, because one of the things that's interesting about a lot of people who live in these favelas, they are, you know, construction workers. They're people who work mm-hmm. with their hands. They're people yeah. who work in homes, um, domestic servants, and things like that. So they, what they do is they literally make their homes out of the scraps that they have access to, sometimes at work, and with the skills that they learn at work, right? So this is kind of a backstory to talk right, about. Right, right. Um, but anyway, I think that the interesting thing in this case is that with the Olympics, like with any sporting event, the police have amped up their violence, amped up their brutality, amped up their, their reach, their reach, right? Um, and the state has as well. So the state has been implementing quite a bit of measures to increase the reach of the police, the control that the police have over um, black and brown bodies, and in particular, poor black and brown bodies, to be very specific. Um, and so in, in Ryan Lochte's uh, creating this ridiculous story about how he had been robbed at gunpoint by people pretending to be police. There's a lot of stuff happening. So first of all, what's interesting is that I remember the first time I came to Brazil a long time ago, um, and I went to Rio, and I was told by the tour guide, you know, if you guys have an emergency, don't go to the police. Go to the person who works in the front desk. Go to the per- go to a tour guide, but don't go to the police. And we were like, what the heck? You know, like, what are we mm-hmm. supposed to do if there's an emergency? And it's precisely because the police are often complicit, as we see in many places, not just Brazil. They're complicit in the crime that happens in these communities and against these people. Um, and so it's not always, you know, the police are not always your friend. In some cases, they may continue the abuse. We were given a similar warning. We were given a similar warning. When you, when you were there in 2007, we were given a similar warning. Yeah, uh, oh, no. When we and traveled to, to Rio, yeah. And so, you know, first of all, he's playing on, on this issue, right? right. I don't know if he himself had heard that or not, but it's something that is a real problem. When you do have sometimes the police themselves can also turn out to be uh, the ones who commit the violence towards you, um, as they often do within these poor communities. But then the other thing that the other things that are going on here is that um, considering the, the imagery of Rio and of Brazil in general, right? And I swear I get this every time. Every time I say I'm going to Brazil, city of God reference. Yeah, I get City of God references. I get, oh my God, is it so dangerous there? I also mm-hmm. get, you know, questions about the women, usually, like, oh, right. women there are so pretty, or is everybody right. naked, or the stereotypes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's playing on this sort of stereotype that Amer- U.S. Americans often have of Brazil, based on popular culture and based mm-hmm. on tourists, you know, kind of tourists and things like that, that misinterpret sometimes what's actually going on in Brazil or don't know the history once again. Right. Um, and then the other thing that's happening too is that because of this intensification of policing during these sorts of these sorts of international mega sporting events, he literally is endangering people's lives. And I say that because um, you know, they're already increasing surveillance, they're already increasing their reach, they're already increasing right. violence. We've seen police brutality has gone up exponentially during the uh, in prior immediately prior to and during the Olympic Games. Um, and so when a person who's from the United States who's a well-known, famous swimmer, you know, who's white, who's male, who's represent- a representative, basically, of power in this mm-hmm. country, right? In, in our country yeah. and in Brazil. Um, and he says, he, he tries both. He says, someone robbed me. Two people, some people who were, who were dressed like police robbed me. And it, what happens is, not only is he playing on stereotypes in the United States, 
in knowing that everyone's going to believe him. But he's also playing on stereotypes here in Brazil, right? So the, it, there's the stereotype here as well, much like we see in the United States, that people of color, people of African descent, people who are poor, are criminals, just automatically, inherently violent and criminal. Um, and so in the process of, of doing that, he, he's basically sending out the police to go after suspects that don't exist. Right. So it's much like what we saw with Susan Smith. It's like what we see with, um, you know, all the cases of lynching in the early 20th exactly. century, right? Where someone said, oh, so-and-so whistled at me, so-and-so mm-hmm. looked at me the wrong way. And they, they send out the police. They send right. out the lynch mob. Right. And so I think in, in a very real way, he could have risen, and I don't know if they, I'm not sure about the specifics of if they rounded up uh, suspects in the states or not, but in the process of looking even for suspects, he's putting these people at risk. Putting communities who are already vulnerable um, at risk for increased, even more, like further increased uh, police surveillance and potential abuse. And so, for me, it's not just a question of like, you know, not only did he did he potentially put people in danger, but he insulted Brazil. He insulted uh, Cariocas or people who are from Rio, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, in a lot of ways, it was in a lot of ways it was not just a show of privilege, but it was on a most on the most base level a show of disrespect and I, I just think it was inappropriate so and, and to be clear it's not just Ryan and Lossie right it's the whole gang like it's Ryan right. Lossie and some other yeah others. it was four of them yeah yeah it's a yeah, whole group of them I don't want to throw it all on Ryan Lossie but yeah. Well, he's the one that hurried up and hightailed it out of there before anyone figured out what really had happened. Because I remember reading what was it yesterday, or whatever, and they were like, "Okay, we're we're gonna we're gonna hold everyone's passports." And there was a report. They're like, "Well, his dad is reporting that he's already actually back in the U.S." So I think, like, to go along with what you were saying about respect, it's 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 respect, it's accountability, it's integrity. I mean, there's all of this. There's all of this stuff built around the Olympics and the Olympic team and you're representing your country. Like, you're not just going there and just competing in some sporting event. Like, you're representing your country, right? You're representing your country, but it's also supposed to be a sense of deference and respect to the host country. And 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 and, and you have to be a fool not to have seen. There's been, like you said, there's been tons of articles. There's been a lot of information about what has been happening leading up all of the issues leading up to the Rio, the Rio Olympics this year. Um, from, you know, the internal structural and, and, and actual, you know, being able to get construction on time to, like you said, clearing people out, um, increased stepped up violence. It's just there. You'd have, I mean, there's just no excuse for it. And it's, it is disrespectful. It's, it lacks accountability. It's pathetic. It's, there is just so long with things. And when the real story, when the school, the real, as much as the real story that we have so far is them being drunk and causing property damage at a gas station. And the reason why they came back with no money is because they basically paid the gas station owner or manager or whatever for the damages. <laughs> like, and the gun that got pulled on them was pulled on them by a security guard because right. of what they were doing. Like, I, I, it's just, it's just, dude, like you, it, 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 it's just like you're not just some little frat boy, and it's bad enough, right? When frat boys and other people do stuff, you know, cause damage and things like that. But you know, this is like a really high honor, right? So even though even though their events were over, but you're still there. You're still representative of something greater than yourself. And but whatever, you white, so you must be right. So I'm gonna go party and get drunk and kick in bathroom doors and stuff. Like it just 
it totally boggles my mind. And how they go from that to, oh, we got robbed at gunpoint by police officers. It, I don't know. And, and even like the Brazilian, the Brazilian authority there for the Olympics apologized to them. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a perfect example of this sort of, uh, you know, I don't, I don't like to throw around, I don't like to throw around terms that are kind of ahistorical. So not, I don't want to say that this is directly an imperial relationship or directly a neo-colonial right. relationship. But, right. You know, if we're going to use a metaphor, it's pretty much, you know, textbook, like imperialistic gaze. Mm-hmm. On the, the developing country, the developing country that's predominantly of color, the developing country that has an ec- is currently in an, under an economic crisis, and to to be mm-hmm. more specific, yes. the state and city of Rio have declared bankruptcy, right? So they are literally right, economically right. Yes. In, in dire straits. And so it's a complete, it's like a, a, a you know, when you hear about the rock stars who destroyed the hotel room, yes. right? I, I feel like some some people when they're tourists in other countries, they feel like, especially if it's a country that's economically and or racially different from their own, they feel like that every location is a vacation spot. Every location becomes a hotel room for them to destroy mm-hmm. and for someone else to come in and clean up after. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why I actually specifically avoided Rio, because I, I, I'm often mistaken as a Brazilian, um, even though I'm from the United States, it's born in the United States, but because of what I look like, I'm often mistaken not only as a Brazilian by other Brazilians, but in particular by people who are tourists. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been, you know, sexually, people have been sexually aggressive with me before when I've gone out who are tourists who assume that I was a Brazilian woman. And so it's definitely like, this is what I was avoiding, you know, and God forbid, you know, I feel even worse for the people who have to deal with this on a regular basis. Right. So that's just, you know, like for me, it's temporary. I can avoid it. But imagine being a person who's from Rio was from a place in, in one of these countries where it's a, it's a big there's a big tourist attraction and mm-hmm. they're always receiving people yeah. from quote unquote developed countries how they are treated on a regular basis as if they are disposable or if you know what the things that their their material resources don't matter we can just come in and we can roll up and destroy everything and someone else will take care of it and then we can throw the blame on somebody who's a local we can say oh that that person over there did it. You know, I absolutely agree with awful. that. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Um, one of the one of the law students who went the year ahead of me, he's from down, he's from here in Atlanta. Older, he's a little older than I am, late thirties now. Um, black guy, big black guy. Um, he was mistaken. He told us the story because you know they didn't want to take the trip from us. But when we got back, and you know the, the Boston students, they were like, "Well, how, who went before?" They were like, "Okay, so how was your experience? You know, tell us all about it." So he finally shared the story. His his racist person. And again, because, you know, you can speak a little bit, they might overhear you speaking a little Portuguese, because most of us tried to learn enough basic Portuguese, at least, to order food and stuff like that while we were there. Um, I picked up some, but I haven't used it in so long, but I picked up some because my house mother, when we were in Victoria, she um, she would not let her daughter translate for me. Um, it's a good way to learn. So I lived with them for five days, but thankfully the dad knew some Spanish, and my Spanish is much better. So, um, and the I think her brother, someone else knew Spanish, like three of them knew Spanish. So I was able to so her mom let me get by with Spanish sometimes, <laughs> sometimes. But after a while, she get mad, and at breakfast she quizzed me and stuff like. And, and like Bruna started to, to translate for me and they wouldn't let her and I was just like oh my god when I got to class I said they're not letting them translate for me and everybody else was like yeah our families are doing the same too but 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 anyway but but um but Brian was just saying that they were all in a restaurant and he's the only black person in this whole big group and I guess someone overheard him talking 
And so when he was walking back to the table, they thought he was a waiter. And, mm-hmm. and, and this woman got really mad because he was ignoring her. And so when he sat down, like, she was just irate. And then I, I don't know if her sober came on, they're like, he's not a waiter. Um, but I had a similar experience in a mall in LeBlanc. We were, when we were in um, LeBlanc uh, area in Rio, we were in the store and I was looking at shirts or something like that or whatever. And the woman, you know, she kept tapping me in my back to get her a size. And I just looked at her. I said, oh, I'm American. I understood her and I couldn't respond. In words. I said, I'm American. And she just looked at me and walked away. It's the, it is the way. And those, I mean, those are just such, those are just trivial, you know. But so I can only imagine for people who live there every single day, you know, what people have to experience. Or the fact that we were probably in privileged spaces where people, oh, yeah. because we were American tourists, if people don't actually. Mall, absolutely. <laughs> well, yeah, 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 right. If I was in a mall. For so many people, right? Particularly if you're looking. I mean, where we were at in Rio, I know we were, we were an extremely privileged place, um, privileged space altogether. So, so yeah. Um, so yeah, when I, but when I heard it, I just I immediately thought of that, and I, I thought, you know, this is like I said, this is what I wanted to avoid, right? And I, I made the right decision. Um, right. To take that first. Uh, but I think it's really just a it's it's the belief that. You know, if you're not of the same economic status, if you're not of the same racial status, that somehow, you know, as cheesy as it sounds, right, that your life doesn't matter or that your value in society is less right. than, than mine as someone who's from the United States or who's white or fill in the blank uh, level of privilege. But I think, it, like I said, I think it goes much deeper than just white privilege, which is what a lot of people reduced my statement to who didn't continue to read. Check black and Latino. You have to check one or the other. Right. 
and you can be all of the above and more. Yes, <laughs> yes, you can. You you absolutely can. And in, in particular, um, what I think is interesting in the Brazilian case, right, is that no one, no one, no one at all, no matter if they heard, you know, that Ryan Murphy, yes, his mother is Cuban, but she's she's white. Like we she don't know white Cuban. I mean, I mean, Ted Cruz is a white Cuban. you a lot longer than we originally agreed upon, but I really appreciate this conversation. Um, no problem. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Uh, and Brazil up next. Thanks.